Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with Anthony Horowitz. Anthony mines the world of spooks and gumshoes to craft great books. He's the creator of the Diamond Brothers, Alex Ryder, and the Power of Five series for younger readers, and the author of Conan Doyle estate-approved novels The House of Silk and Moriarty for grown-ups. He also writes extensively for television, including for Poirot, Midsummer Murders and Foyle's War. His latest commission is from the Ian Fleming estate to write a new James Bond novel. This is a session for all the family, cheered by Michael Williams. We hope you enjoy it. Well, this is a treat. Uh, We're very lucky to be joined by today's guest. Hello, my name is Michael Williams. I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne and... I am thrilled to be at Auckland Writers Festival 2015. Our guest, before I say anything else, we are blessed to have a guest who is not only one of the world's very finest writers and uh, celebrated, but he is also, I think it's fair to say, a master of life and death. <laughs> his, uh, let's start with death. For his work creating... Midsummer Murders, Foyle's War. Midsummer Murders alone, I think, there's probably 300 deaths on this man's conscience. I have, you know, I, I wrote the first um, seven episodes of that show, uh, 14 hours of it, and then I gave up writing it because I realised there was nobody left in Midsummer to murder. Well, that's what I thought at the time, anyway. I thought How many done. did you kill in those seven, do you think? Armour. I think it was, used to be about three and eight. We had a thing, you see, that we would always worry that when the advertising break came, people would go away and make a coffee. So we thought the best thing to do is, well, if you kill somebody, that'll sort of get them to come back again and see who did it. But the, then they started putting in more and more adver- advertisements, so the, the body count began to rise. Blame the advertisers. And I must tell you, I remember meeting a young actor who was on his first job, and I'd set one of my episodes in a house called Loth. Lorian, Loth Lorian, and, uh, and this young guy came to me and says, you know, it's funny, I've just been offered this um, job in New Zealand making these films of The Lord of the Rings, and I'm working as the gardener in Loth Lorian now, do you think I should do it? And I said, yeah, I think Orlando, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, and yet you weren't respectful enough not to kill him off. I did, quickly. he had a pitchfork in the chest. Yeah, no, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty brutal. But, you know, I like that you don't confine your murder just to adult television, you as a writer for young people. I mean, the... The Diamond Brothers series alone has a pretty sizable death count. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know quite what, what sort of image of me you're p- promoting here to this audience. You're brutal. I, death, death is... Death, you know, I, don't, I don't take great pleasure in sort of, you know, violence and unpleasantness, but, but, but sometimes it is true that there is a high body count in my books. Um, and and it's, I suppose it's, it's, it's a genre, I suppose, as much as anything else. Well, 15 years ago this year, Stormbreaker, the first Alex Ryder book, came out. Uh, that's a pretty extraordinary achievement, 15 years. And in that time, uh, have I got this right, more than 19 million copies worldwide? I, I think the figure changes depending on who you talk to, but it's about 19 million. Yeah, that's right. Give or take. Well, it's so a lot of books anyway. And the funny thing is it makes no real difference to me. You know, the, these books are out there and I sort of think of them, but actually it doesn't change writing. I mean, writing is just me and one book and that's the one in front of me. Fair um, enough. But I say you're a master of life and death. You're a master of life because across your career... You've done extraordinary work resurrecting much-loved figures from literary history, from Robin Hood to uh, your work with Tintin, Poirot... Of course, yes. ..and, of course, Sherlock Holmes, Watson and Moriarty. Indeed so, yes, both of those, and, and then Bond as well. What an achievement. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause for Anthony oh, Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Before we get to all those mini achievements and to Bond, which is the upcoming thing that we're very excited about, I want to take you back a bit and I want you to tell me about the sinister secret of Frederick K. Bauer. 1979, your very first book. It is an extraordinary thought. Gosh, you've gone back a very long way. 1979, I was um, 24 years old. I was working in advertising. I was very, very bad at advertising. Um, I, ne I could never... It always makes me a bit sad, you know. There is a tradition of writers, famous writers, working in advertising. Salman Rushdie, for example, came up with a line, um, Naughty but Nice, for Cream. It was a very, very famous advertising line in England. Faye Weldon, another big writer, came up with Go to Work on an Egg. I was in advertising for six years, and the best I came up with was Townsend Torres and Car Ferries, 20% off. It's a sort of <laughs> slightly, slightly um, unfortunate uh, career. But anyway, I was working in advertising, and for reasons I still don't quite understand, on a wet afternoon, bored and just sort of, you know, restless, I began to write a children's book with no thought about it at all. And at that time when I started, children's books weren't like they are now. You know, there was only one famous children's writer alive in the world, and that was Roald Dahl. Nobody got a look in. Nobody would have been invited to festivals like this as a children's author. Our newspapers didn't cover kids' books. Even bookshops didn't have dedicated children's book sections. So it really was a sort of Cinderella of the industry. Everything, of course, changed with J.K. Rowling. Uh, but at that time, it was just a crazy thing to do, but I did it. And you weren't a parent... Yet at that time, I didn't. I, listen, I didn't know anything about children. I did. You know, I, 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 I had no connection with it at all. No. But what you did know is that as a child yourself, you'd love to read. I'd always known I was going to be a writer from the age of like 10 years old. I was already writing. Um, when I was 10, I remember vividly asking my father to buy me a typewriter for my birthday. Uh, this is the age before computers. Not the most generous of men, he bought me a biro, but it was, it was, it was, it was enough. I, I was a, a little boy, I had my big notebook. At the age of 10, I wrote a play called The Thing That Never Happened about Guy Fawkes trying to blow up the Houses of Parliament. And that was my first sort of, you know, writing assignment. The Thing That Never Happened, it's very Beckett. Is this? Well, a young Beckett. I didn't think so quite, but, uh, but that's what I first wrote. And I, and I was writing all through my school days, all through my teens. I can remember being a boy lying in bed at night, designing the covers of my books, and just trying to work out what colour penguin spine they would have. Would they be the red or orange classic or the grey or the pop, you know, which one? It was, and I was even working on my signature even for one day I would be signing books. I don't know if that sounds arrogant or what, but it's, it's, it's truth. That's how I was. I love it. As a child, you thought, one day I'll be in Auckland and I'll be in the signing queue and I'll be telling people, yes, just a dedication. <laughs> no, well, no, I mean, it's just, it's just that that's how no, I was. No, but that's wonderful, that idea of vocation. What was the relationship for you knowing you were a writer from such an early age between reading and writing? Well, I wasn't a very good reader. I, was quite, I, was, I wasn't a very bright child. That's the honest truth of it. I was quite um, a slow starter. I was quite a, a, a rotund child as well, so I was quite bullied. I have my worst memory of school, and I'm sure many English men of my age have this memory, is when they chose the football team and they go, you, 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 and, they, and gradually everyone, and every single time, I was the last one to get chosen after the school dog. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was not fun. And, and, and uh, what was your question? I forgot what the question was. We, um, it was about the relationship between oh, relationship reading between, and writing. Yeah. I did, however, start reading at around about the age of 10, 11. And, and I started with Tintin. This Tintin is still very much with me um, uh, as sort of, you know, as an iconic sort of leader of me into the world of writing. Tintin is himself a writer, a journalist. Um, and so I started with Tintin books. And then I went from there to Willard Price, who was my great love as a, as a young person. I still have very strong memories of being in the library at the very, very nasty school where I was sent to the uh, border, age 8 to 13, waiting 
for the next um, Willard Price to come in. And I, when I write children's books, I always remember that hunger, that passion for the book. And I want children to have that same feeling about my books. And so I try and inject that sort of energy and enthusiasm into my writing. But that was a big deal for me, those books. And they were wonderful, adventurers and escape and all the rest of it. From there, I forget what I... I suppose Roald Dahl would have been around when I was a kid and um, eventually into Fleming and, and stuff like that. H.G. Wells, I like, the science fiction writer. So my writing matured. And when I got to secondary school, I was very lucky. I had three brilliant teachers in English literature who encouraged me to expand my reading and, and discover the classics. So were you driven in those early years by reading to escape? I mean, was it adventure books? Was it spies, science fiction, mystery? I found myself in books. That's the honest truth. I was so unhappy from the age of 8 to 13. I was, I was noticing yesterday that every writer who's been on the stage has gone on about their unhappy childhood. I think there should be a, an unhappy childhood award at this um, festival for the person who had the most unhappy childhood. But anyway, I had very wealthy parents. I was very privileged upbringing and I have to be very careful because there are so many children in the world who are genuinely unhappy. I had a sort of a, a this just strange emotional wilderness I was in in this very, very horrible school. And so stories were the escape for me. Um, reading in the library, but also, curiously, at a very, very early age, like 10, telling stories. We're in a dormitory in this sort of very hostile, abusive atmosphere. Um, and I, I met an, a, a boy from the school recently, and he told me stories about the teachers and sexual abuse that I hadn't realized was going on. I, I, I didn't know about that, but that was there too. And in this dormitory, there are these little children in bed, and they're scared, and they're unhappy, and they're homesick. So I began to tell stories to cheer them up. And every night I would tell, there was an, a famous actor in Britain called Jimmy Edwards. That's going back a bit. He was this man with a huge handlebar moustache and sort of, you know, and Mr. He, he had these adventures. Where I created Jimmy and Edward, two boys after him, who then went and had Willard Price-style adventures um, uh, around the world. And I told these stories night after night. Wow, I love that. I've heard you say in an interview, and I, this kind of resonates, there's something very English about that kind of unhappiness of childhood, the, the boarding school, the, dare I say it, sorry to be racist here, but emotional repression, it's all right, we've inherited it here in Australia and New Zealand as well, <laughs> um, oh. that lends itself to the kinds of stories you tell, the stories about uh, secrecy and what it leads to. Well, I think, think, I think the that? nature of, I think writing children's books was an attempt to try and relive a childhood I hadn't had, to be the child in my books that I never could have been uh, in real life because of my physicality and because of the sort of nature of my life there. So I think that, I don't necessarily think what the content of the stories is, but as I say, it was an odd decision to write a children's book at that time, uh, and, and I think it was down to that. I think, you know, you, you, you ask yourself the question, do you need an unhappy childhood in order to write kids' books? And you think of Roald if you've read Boy, you know that you know that's very much his sort of world as well. And and then you ask yourself, which which would you like? If you're going to have the 19 million sales, but you've have, or you can lose those, but have a happy childhood, which would you prefer? Uh, <laughs> tricky, tricky. Uh. Yeah, I think we'll uh, poll the audience afterwards. You all get to choose. Um, but if we jump forward to 2000 and Alex Ryder, part of what defines that series is Alex. Being a 14-year-old from the start who doesn't have control over his own life, who's used and taken advantage of by grown-ups. Well, that, that came about because of Iraq, largely, the Iraq War. When I wrote the first Alex Ryder book in 2000, 
um, we were in the build-up to the, what would eventually become the sort of the war that took out Saddam Hussein. And it was very, very obvious to me that the secret service, the intelligence services were lying to us and that the government was lying to us. And there was this sort of strange conspiracy. And so when I wrote the Alex Ryder books, I had this idea that he would be a boy in a very, very hostile world, but the secret service would not be the cuddly M figure of the James Bond novels. It would, on the contrary, my character is called Blunt, and that's not an accident. He's named after the worst spy in, in British history, um, somebody you couldn't trust. And so that was sort of the animus for those things, for those stories, was, was, was semi-political. The other thing about the Alex Ryder books, it was my 15th book, um, Stormbreaker, was it was the first children's book I wrote that had a real character at the heart of it. Not somebody who is having an adventure. It doesn't read like a children's book. When it was published, it didn't even look like a children's book. And it, I've never called it that. I've always thought of it as an adult book for kids. And, and, you're, and you're right, this Alex's reluctance to get involved, the fact that he just wants to have a happy life, is, I think, the key to those books' success. It's funny, Ian Rankin says about the Rebus books that it took him seven books to become an overnight success. Did you have that feeling of a process? The funny thing is that when I wrote, I, I, by the time I wrote um, Stormbreaker, I was already quite successful as a television writer. I'd done Robin of Sherwood, which had put me into a, a, a top league of, of TV writing because we were getting audiences of 15 million people in the UK, I think 80 million around the world. It was a fantastic program to be a junior writer on, and, and other shows were coming to me. And I'd had all these kids' books, Granny, Gruesome Grange, the Falcons Malteser, etc., etc., but had done okay, 10,000 sales, 12,000 sales, but hadn't really hit the jackpot. And I was always thinking that actually there was a bigger audience out there for these stories and that I would find them. And I remember that I, I, I had had this idea about a teenage bond, and I went to my office in North London where I was living then, and I wrote the first sentence, when the doorbell rings at three in the morning, it's never good news. And I looked at that sentence, and I said to my wife, my wife had said, give up, don't, don't do any more of these books, they're, just, they're, they're frustrating you, and you've got this other career. I, said, I went and I said, this is the book. This is the one. I found something. And it's to do with that authority in that first line, the sense that this is not another children's book. It's going to be a serious book. And although, you know, I don't overclaim for these books. They are just adventures. But nonetheless, there was a seriousness in them that somehow connected with the correct time. As I say, Rowling had already opened the floodgates for writers like me to, to crest in on her wave. And, um, and then it all just happened. I would say that if your career shows us anything, it's that there's no such thing as just adventures. And so many of those stories that you tell... You know, the adventure uh, is not something to be taken lightly. I think you can't write as much as I have written without having an opinion, without having thought, without having some kind of depth. So I try to make the books have a certain seriousness of intent. And I also am a strong believer in, um, in good language in children's books. I get quite cross with wanna and gonna and ah and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's quite, I think language is, is, is something I, which I love. I mean, you know, my readings of Dickens and Austin and such teaches me how wonderful language can be, the rhythms of it and the choice of words. And, um, and so even in an Alex Ryder adventure, I try to write well. I want to take you back to something you said a second ago, talking about cutting your teeth as a TV writer on Robin of Sherwood. Talk about that experience of taking such an iconic character and being responsible for them for the first time. Well, in that sense, I didn't have that on that show because Robin of Sherwood had already been created by Richard Carpenter, who was a wonderful writer and a mentor <coughs> to me. I mean, you know, I miss him. He died about 
four years ago now, and I, I still miss him. He was, a, he was a, a, a wonderful friend and taught me so much about television writing. And he had already created the very fact that it wasn't Robin Hood, but Robin of Sherwood was his idea, and, and bringing in the mythology, Hearn the Hunter, and using pagan mythology and witchcraft and stuff uh, hadn't been done in, in uh, that world before. So he was the person who had done that. And, and my job was simply, to, and actually it does come to what I'm doing now, because my job was to be invisible. Whenever I do these books by Conan Doyle or Ian Fleming, my first job is not to impose myself on them. It's to do what the other writer, the better writer, has, has already set up. And in my case in this, it was to listen to his voice, to follow the rules that he had done, and just to do it as well as he did it. And that's what I did. Uh, and it was a fantastic experience, so just brilliant. I was so naive that when I wrote my first episode, it had a ruined church in a field. And, um, and I, I was still in my 20s. I, I, I didn't know much about anything. I certainly knew nothing about television. And, and uh, it had a ruined church with a balcony where somebody would be hiding and something else. And I, I went onto the set, and, they, and there it was. I saw the church that had been in my script exactly as I had described it. And I couldn't believe that in England they'd managed to find this church and in the middle of a field. So I, I walked up to it and... Tapped it, and of course it was made of plastic. It wasn't real, and it hadn't occurred to me if they'd built the damn thing. I mean, you know, the power, the mm. creation—you brought it to life with yeah. your words. Um, so then, let's follow your TV trajectory from there a bit, because the work on Poirot is a f far more direct case of having to bring to life a character who's very much alive in people's heads and very established in their imagination. But again, established by somebody else, and, and Brian Eastman in this case, and Carnival, and um, uh, Clive Exton, who was the senior writer on that show, had already set the house style and had done everything that, that, they, you know, that, that needed to be done. And my job was, once again, just simply to sort of follow where they had led. What's interesting is I'm now, my next book, after the, the, the bond, bond is this year, and then next year I have a book coming out which is called Magpie Murders. And now I'm... I'm now channeling my Agatha Christie and going back to Poirot. And Magpie Murders, the idea is one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, etc., which is exactly how Agatha Christie sets up her books. Uh, one, two, buckle my shoe, is, you know, for example. And um, my book is a sort of a whodunit about whodunits. I'm looking at why, why we're interested in detectives, why we like murder, why, why these things are done. Uh, and that's going, going back to, to my year's apprenticeship on Poirot. So how important is Christie to you? She's not important at all. I admire her. I like her work. I'm, you know, I, I don't use her, as it were. I mean, I, I think Roger Ackroyd and Ten Little Indians, or, and then there were none as it's now p called for PC reasons, um, uh, and, um, and, uh, 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 and Murder on the Orient Express, and my favorite of all, um, Cards at the Table, I think it's called, um, are masterpieces of construction. They are really, really clever. And I'm very interested in the whole... Uh, construction of murder and of whodunit and clues and riddles. And in Magpie Murders, I'm, I'm so excited because I've got a motive for a murder that has never, ever been done in a book before. And that motive can be found on the first page of the book. And nobody has noticed it yet. Nobody has seen it. When I sent the, the proposal into the publishers, I, had it, I did the same trick. I said, the motive for the murder and the identity of the killer is contained in these two sheets of paper. And they had to buy the book and pay me because I've, there was no way, no, no way they are going to find out otherwise. You know? <laughs> I'm not convinced that's not your greatest advertising trick yet. It's uh, certainly well. better than your campaign right there. That's a sales job. Maybe. The, um, I'm, I'm interested that you don't see Christie as important, but looking at those first seven episodes of Midsummer Murders or looking at um, 
Foyle's War or a, a lot of your work that's come since, there's clearly a deep awareness of Christie, not just those great ones, but the kind of the rules she sets up, the puzzle game. You're probably right, actually. I was, my answer before was wrong and you found me out. Um, she does, there is an influence by Christie. I read Agatha Christie. I had a year working in Australia as a jackaroo and um, uh, in my gap year, very, very happy year. And when I went back, I went overland. I, I hitchhiked basically from Darwin to London. And on the hippie trail then, to all those countries you can't visit now, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, India, the, well, you can visit some of them, but, you know, dangerous places are that now, uh, not then. And along the way, I swapped Agatha Christie. Every youth hostel I went to, I would finish one and leave it and take another one. So, and I even read some of them in the correct place. So, I, you know, Mur Murder on the Orient Express, I read in Istanbul, for example, yeah. Death on the Nile. No, I didn't get to Egypt, but, you know, I could have. And, um, and I did pick up her structuring and the cleverness of her plots and I've always enjoyed doing that I, I like it's quite there aren't many writers who, who do it to my satisfaction which is give you that sort of riddle that you can solve and should have solved but but don't solve even Conan Doyle doesn't do that Doyle in Sherlock Holmes doesn't give you enough clues really to solve the story Sherlock Holmes keeps stuff to himself Agatha Christie plays fair with you and it's all there and I do love her tropes for that. And in writing, you know, uh, Magpie Murders, I am using a lot of them. So, yes, she, does, she has had an influence. So, in writing Magpie Murders, what, not to preempt anything, but what conclusions are you reaching about why we love these books? I mean, one of the things that we hear again and again about the Christie model is part of it is about the restoration of the natural order. Here's, here's the world, something is out of kilter, this terrible act has happened, and we're looking for resolution. Do you think there's something in that? I might use that. That's quite good. Um, uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's to do with our desire to understand. I think that what it does is, is that, that, that it, when you read fiction, you are searching to understand the main protagonist, but never more so than in a detective novel, where the whole raison d'etre of the book is to find out the truth about which character is the killer, which is simplistic and basic, but nonetheless it gives you the excuse to peel away the layers and go into people, which you can do in great literature, of course, by simply you know, reading 500 pages about a person, which will eventually take you to their soul, but in a, in a whodunit, it's a much easier approach, and it is the only form of writing in which the main character and the reader stand shoulder to shoulder for the entire process. The detective and the reader travel through the book to the same conclusion, and they, they need each other to, sort of, you know, to exist. So I think it's something in there. Plus, of course, the British, we're so, we keep our emotions under lock and key. We're such a sort of, you know, we are a, com a country where we live behind our net curtains. And I think also the detective story allows you to tear those curtains open and to go into the life. But, the, you know, that's only one aspect of the book. I'm also interested in the relationship between the writer of a detective series and his detective. As you know, of course, Conan Doyle, was very happy to throw um, Sherlock Holmes off the Rickenback Falls because he was fed up with him. He thought he was a better writer than that and wanted to write romances and that historical romance, none of which now anybody reads anymore. Uh, or, you know, if he were alive, he would be so depressed that it's always just Sherlock Holmes. Uh, even Brigadier Gerard, who I love, is, n is not very popular anymore. Um, so it's also about that, the relationship between the creator and his creation. Sometimes I feel my, my whole life, I've spent half my life now, 15 years of it, you know, as a biographer of a 14-year-old boy, that can't be right. Um, <laughs> that was Alex, Alex Ryder. Yeah, no, 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 I, I was with you. I didn't think you had a hobby on the side. <laughs> <coughs> I, um, let's go to Conan Doyle, because it's not just about the relationship between the writer and his detective, but it's also about the role of the narrator. I mean, you mentioned 
in the context of Christy Roger Ackroyd, which is a very deft feat of narrative construction. The false narrative, yeah. Um, but uh, the two homes, the two books in the Holmes world that you've written both have a lot of fun with that kind of narrative form and the voice of who tells us the story. Yeah, in different ways. I mean, in a sense, The House of Silk, the first Sherlock Holmes book, was more fun to write, definitely, than the second, because the voice of Dr. Watson is what makes the book so great. People forget that Sherlock Holmes himself is a not an attractive character. He's very cold, he's very aloof, he is very um, intellectually repressed and, and, and difficult. He's also unhygienic, we're told. I mean, lots of things, untidy. Uh, and yet we love him because, because Watson does. And Watson's voice is a great, great voice to take on as a, as a, sort of, you know, as a counterfeiter, which is what I was in that book. And, uh, and, I, and I enjoyed writing it perhaps even more than Moriarty because of having him there. But having done that book and done it well and having had a success with it, I'm a sort of writer that doesn't like to... I don't want to repeat myself. You know, I think writing is an adventure. Writing has always got to surprise you. It's always got to challenge you. There's always got to be new things to do. And as I get older, I'm searching for things that I have never done before and which people have never read before either. Uh, and so after The House of Silk was finished, I, I, I cast about for how to get back into that world in a different way and came up with having done the, the good guy, let's go for the bad guy and see what I can do with Moriarty. The, um, one of the extraordinary achievements of House of Silk is its length. You sustain, it feels like a Holmes, like a classic Conan Doyle story, but it is, must be twice the Michael, length you, of any you of You put those. your finger on the biggest challenge that that book presented, which was that um, the average Sherlock Holmes novella that is to say, not the short stories, is 40,000 words, 40, 45,000 words. And they're also very peculiar because in at least two of them, uh, The Sign of Four and um, Valley of Fear, no, sc uh, Study in Scarlet and Sign of Fear, Sherlock Holmes barely appears. For at least half the book, it sort of takes place elsewhere. So when I was given the, the um, assignment of writing The House of Silk, my first challenge was how do you stretch the 44,000-word construct to a modern novel which has to be 90,000 words? And the answer to it was to do two mysteries. So inside The House of Silk, there's one mystery called The House of Silk, and the other is called The Man in the Flat Cap. And what I think makes the structure work is how carefully they're joined. You don't notice the join where one story... And so Sherlock Holmes is travelling up the story, The Man with the Flat Cap, and then he hits his second story, which is The House of Silver, which takes him off in a completely wrong direction. And that's how the whole thing works. In the... Um, I think only in the e-book edition of The House of Silk, they, there's a wonderful little essay that you've written about the rules you set yourself for writing a Conan Doyle thing. First rule, never be seen wearing a deerstalker cap or holding a pipe. Uh, <laughs> Public. Funny you should say that. I've oh, a don't you dare. No, no, no. I have stuck... My publishers managed to put me into a carriage and horse around London uh, to promote Moriarty. That was actually a lot of fun, but, uh, but I wasn't in fancy dress. But also the other, the more serious rules were to, and this is, I think, you know, this, this world of, of counterfeiting, this world of, of, of whatever they're called, these novels, continuation novels, um, are based on a certain cynicism. I'm always aware of this, that, that the publishers have come up with this format where you take a famous character, Holmes, Bond, or Molesworth, or whoever it's going to be, Jane Austen characters, you then get a famous writer or a, a successful writer, and you put the two together, result, bestseller, must be. And I think it is a cynical exercise, but, but, it, but 
at the same time, it's, it's irresistible to a writer to get drawn into it. And when I, was, you know, when I was asked to do it, I did have to think about it, but, but I only thought about it for five seconds before I said yes, you know, because just to spend a month or to spend seven months at 221B Baker Street, who could resist it? Do tell us about the way that approach happens, because I like to picture you sitting in your drawing room, Mrs. Hudson comes up and says, Anthony, there's a guest at the door. They want you to... So, which world are you talking about? I sit by, my, I sit I, by myself. In I my picture little, you sitting there being well, approached. In a dressing gown yeah, with a Stradivarius. No, no, it wasn't quite that at all. No, I was, an agent approached me and I, and I wrote the book. And I, the only thing I did was to buy a signed copy of a Sherlock Holmes uh, book signed by Doyle so that I would have a little bit of Doyle's spirit in the room. Doyle was, of course, a famous spiritualist and he believed in the afterlife. And when I was writing The House of Silk, I kept this beside me. And I'm myself not very superstitious and don't believe these things, but the writing of it was such, it was so, so joyous, it was such a pleasure to write. But I did sometimes get the feeling that he was sort of standing over my shoulder watching me. It was, it was, a, it was a very comforting book to do. That was something of a talisman. That's yes. I like it. So tell us about Moriarty then. Is it more fun playing with a villain? Moriarty was, I mean, Moriarty, as I said, came about, the, the, the thought of it was this, here is the most evil man in the world, can I write an evil book to go with it? That was the plan. I would write a book that would take you along for 200 pages and then do something so horrible that you'd wish you'd never started reading it. Uh, and that was, that was sort of the, the game I was playing with the reader. And, you know, what's great is that it's worked by and large. You know, people have been completely sidewinded by it and sort of, you know, and... and, and, and and such, but not in happily offended. It, it's sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's done the job. Is um, that because they get the spirit of the game? Yeah, it's a fun book. It's a, it's, it's, it's a riddle and a chase, and it's, and it, and I, you know, it, it is a fun thriller, I think. Continuing on the theme of your counterfeiting, um, it's a little different, this one, but Tintin, talk to me, because you've already said how important the Tintin books were to you. Uh, talk about the task of, of writing a screenplay for the second Tintin film. Well, it's not going to happen. I, think, I don't think the second Tintin film is going to happen. It's an extraordinary fact that the first Tintin film, which I actually did work on, um, I, although I was never credited, I did do quite... There were one or two scenes. I actually saw, with Steven Spielberg in Los Angeles, a one-minute scene, or 40 seconds, that he had directed and I had written. I was bouncing all over the room. I mean, he, he was my... He was. Notice the past tense there, my hero. Uh, it wasn't an entirely happy experience, um, that film. Number two, I worked with Peter Jackson down in um, uh, Wellington, and he was wonderful. I mean, what an amazing man. Um, how can you not love a man? He's got this studio. You probably know all this, but he's got this studio there, and there's this long corridor, and down the corridor is this stationary cupboard. And he took me into the stationary cupboard. It's the size of this area we're sitting in now. But then you press a button and it opens into this vast office. It's got a secret door at the back of it. And that's where he works. And I've always loved secret passages. Tintin, the secret passages in Tintin are what always made me smile. When I was a kid being shown around manor houses and, you know, museums and old buildings in England, I was a kid who was always knocking the secret panel because I knew I would find it. There would be somewhere it would open Every and take me, take me into another world. That's right. Yeah, the bust or whatever. The, and Muller's fireplace. In Tintin even has a secret passage which is uh, in a tree. I love that. Um, but uh, anyway, so, so working with Peter Jackson was, was fantastic. But here is the thing. The first Tintin film, I think, made £360 million worldwide, but it didn't do very well in America. 
And I think for that reason, there may not be a second one. Or, or possibly, also, they have fired me and they're already writing the second one. I haven't told me. I don't know. Uh, but I've had no connection with, with him. I, saw, I, I haven't seen him for, for a year now. Did you enjoy the writing of it, even if it doesn't come to I enjoyed meeting Jackson. I really did. I, you know, I very much admire him. I enjoyed meeting Spielberg, too. I mean, you know, these are people who've been heroes of mine, iconic figures through all my life. And Spielberg has made five of the films I've probably most enjoyed in my lifetime. And I can think of my life as being Jaws, then Close Encounters, then E.T., and then Schindler and, and such. You know, these are, you know, what a body of work that man has produced. Mm. Which, just because I'm a massive Tintin fan, I have to ask... Which book was it going to be for the second I can't film? even tell you. you know. I, 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 I feel sorry, but I no, can't no. tell you publicly because I was always told by everybody not to say. And I can't say for that reason because, quite honestly, they could still be working on it. And, and it wouldn't be fair, therefore, no, if, if, uh, if, that's, um, if that's what's happening. Fair enough. The, how, how different is it doing that act of ventriloquism in, in script form to doing it in a novel. Tintin, I will tell you something, Tintin. I will tell you a story about Tintin that I've never told anybody. It's quite fun. I chose... Don't tell anyone. No, this is just, just between you and me. Um, I, chose, I chose with Peter the Tintin book that, I wanted to, that we wanted to adapt. And I went to a meeting in Paris where Spielberg came. And his first note, I'd written the screenplay by now, was, his first note was, um, wrong book. Um, and that was the end of the meeting. Uh, <laughs> shocking. And so what then happened was, which is rather fun, was that... Um, they basically put that shelf into a, that, that script in, onto a shelf or into a cupboard and commissioned me to write another one on the book that he wanted. So, wow. in fact, I have now written three Tintin films, not one. Uh, bizarre, really. Why did I mention that? Um, uh, what was uh, Script versus prose. Oh, script. It's difficult to turn Tintin into film. The genius of Tintin is the art. Hergé's art is beautiful. I mean, it's really, he is the father of the graphic novel, of the modern comic book. And the artwork and the way the pages are laid out and the, the difference between the big pictures and the little ones and the fact that if you look at a Tintin book, the bottom right picture always, and this is something I've learned from my own writing, the bottom right picture always leads you to turn the page. Something happens, like Tintin will stop and see something or something, somebody will take a shot at him and you've got to turn over the page to, and that's what Hege knew. He was a wonderful narrator. Or uh, Snowy will well. be drunk. In the bottom right hand yeah, but, no, but that Yes, but only then he might fall off the cliff, so you turn over the page to see what's going to happen. Um, turning that into a film loses immediately half the joy of a Tintin book. Now, I did think the first film was wonderful in many ways, and, and the, 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 the desert chase scene in that village is, um, is astonishing as a piece of... Um, you know, Steve Spielberg is a genius, really, w w uh, behind the camera. And... Um, but, but, but even so, it, it wasn't quite Tintin. It was another beast. It was something else. This session is called Bond and Beyond, so we should, uh, we should get to your latest commission and the, the Fleming estate. Before we do, I think we're going to be lucky enough today to hear a tiny little sneak preview of something that we cannot get our hands on. I, yeah, I, I've got it here in front of me. Not the whole book, but I did bring some along. I, I'm absolutely surrounded by... Um, by lawyers who told me I can't, you know, even this book, if you can see, has got written on it, untitled Bond novel, just in case anybody sees the title of a damn thing. Um, but uh, I, I was just, I'll, I'll read you the opening paragraph, just a little tiny snippet of it, and I can always do more if you like, but, it, but just to give you an idea uh, and just talk it through. Uh, this is how the book opens. And I have to say, I wrote this 50 times, this paragraph, and I'm still not sure, but still. <laughs> it was that moment in the day when the world has had enough. The sun was sitting on the horizon, 
a soft red glow creeping over the tidewater, while high above a flock of birds drew random patterns against an empty sky. The wind had dropped, and the afternoon heat had become oppressive, trapped in a haze of dust and petrol fumes. Cutting through the middle of it, the dark blue Crosley station wagon was suddenly alone, spinning along the Interstate 85, heading inland from the coast. And the funny thing, that's just it. But the funny thing about that is, is that you have no idea how long it took me to get that right, to get it to be like Fleming. I don't know, you know, you, I, I don't know, people, people aren't sort of falling over with excitement about that, I imagine. But, but, but you know, it, it, it's just that moment of the day when the world has had enough. That's a very Fleming sentence. His, his best writing has schadenfreude in it. Not schadenfreude, weltschmerz. Weltschmerz, which is tiredness with the world. So you get that sort of sunset. You get that. The word tidewater, I don't quite know why. It's not a word I would use, but it is a word that Fleming would use. Tidewater. So what is a tidewater? I'm not even sure. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And then you, and, and also the cinematic quality of it. You know, you, 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 the, the book starts with the camera basically up here, looking at the whole of this, this area of America, and then you suddenly cut in close shot to the, the vehicle that comes running towards you, which is, I think it's one of the openings of the film does that, actually. Uh, uh, it'll be the, it's the opening of the drug one, Diamonds Are Forever. So there's a little bit of Diamonds Are Forever in there as well. Um, and then naming the Interstate 85, that's a Fleming trick. I mean, he, would, he wouldn't just say the road. He's very specific about, you know, trademarks and names and everything has to be right so it's interstate 85 you know rather than that and so you know that's 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 just um just just how you get into it and then you have to do that for 80,000 words more um, <laughs> sounds easy at the uh, tell me about that though getting into it how do you find Fleming's voice how do you you know do you immerse yourself in his books do you and how do you so many questions. How do you separate out from that to the films? How well, do you first of all, them okay, the, the trick of the book was this. I mean, it's, it wasn't an easy book to write, this book, because you've... Um, first of all, who is James Bond? Is he Sean Connery? Is he Roger Moore? Is he Daniel Craig? Most people would, I think, now say. Nobody, I think, would say George Lazenby, but nor would they say David Niven, who was actually in Fleming's first choice. So you've got to start by thinking, who is your Bond? And then you start looking, uh, my Bond, the answer, the, uh, to answer my own question, is the Bond that Ian Fleming created. But then you've got a problem. Ian, uh, Ian Fleming's Bond is not a very nice man. Uh, he, he's homophobic, for a start. His attitude to women is now considered really on the edge of being disgusting. He's a xenophobe. He doesn't like foreigners. By and large, he just kills them. Uh, uh, <laughs> And, and so, therefore, you've got this construction. And I want to be, as I said, you talked about my rules for the Sherlock Holmes book. And I, I should have mentioned that there were nine others that were all about obeying what the author sets up. So that I'm stuck with that. So how do I then make that acceptable and enjoyable for a 21st century audience? And I'm not offending anybody. And a 21st century audience who's schooled by the films, which move That's, a fair way away from Fleming's spirit, I would have thought. Well, yes, but the big f problem with the films is this, is that people, when they think of James Bond now, the first thing they think about is gadgets, for example. But there are no gadgets in the James Bond books. There is the, in the, from Russia with Love, there's, I think, a, a suitcase with some coins hidden in it, or maybe even with a knife hidden in it somewhere. But that, and Rosa Klebb has the, um, the, the shoes that spit out spikes at the end of From Russia with Love. But apart from that, the gadgets was an, were an invention of the films. So my decision is, 
no gadgets because there were no gadgets in the Fleming book. And it does beg the question of whether actually anybody will want to read this book. Because um, who reads, you know, people read Conan Doyle and they are very aware of the voice of Dr. Watson. Very few people will notice all the sort of the intricacies of my using and guying in Fleming's language. Bond doesn't have a lot of sex in Fleming's books. It yeah, tends to be withheld to the, to the end. That's not strictly true. I think he does, he does the sex scenes. They're, they are, you're right there at the end, largely, but there are also some sort of at the beginning and the middle. They, they, they vary. Sex scenes were the hardest thing to... I knew my children would read the book for a start, so that was sort of worrying and, and such, but, um, but it was difficult to get it right. My wife was the first person to read the book, and she hated it. It was really interesting. My wife is also my producer. She produces Foil's War. And so I'm very used to taking notes from her. But I was quite surprised by her level of anger at the book. And it was because I had gone too far with Fleming's sexism. I remember that there was a description I was very, very happy with. It's not in the book. But um, a woman, Bond is in a racing car. Part of it takes place in racing. And a woman leans over him. And I described, quote, the school teacher's tick of her breast. And I thought, wow, that's really Ian Fleming. And my wife said, no, it's just disgusting. So, uh, um, so it's gone. Um, <laughs> yeah, best not to argue there. <laughs> In a couple of minutes, you're going to get a chance to ask some questions of Anthony. I mention it now so that you can kind of prepare yourself because otherwise the house lights will come up and you'll all be too nervous. So have a think about it now and you can ask some questions in just a tick. <laughs> Fleming... Fleming, unlike Conan Doyle, has been reappropriated many times, not just by the different directors who have made the films, but by other writers, Jeffrey Deaver, Sebastian Fawkes. Did that mean you felt you could take more liberties with the tradition? Um, I have to be very careful what I say about this, but, but first of all, I think the first, the first thing I would say is that my favourite of all the Bond continuation novels was actually done a long time ago. It was Colonel Sun by Robert Markham, which was the actual uh, pseudonym of Kingsley Amis. Um, and I thought that Sebastian Fawkes and, and William Boyd are both brilliant writers and, I, and, and such. I, I wanted to do different things from them. And Jeffrey Deaver moving Bond into the present day, I thought that was an error. I didn't, I didn't, um, didn't go with that. I, mean, I did enjoy the books, but I, I wanted to bypass them. I wanted to go right back to basics, right back to this Fleming core. Uh, you know, I am a bit of a nerd about Bond. I'm, I'm, I am very much... These were the books I read as a child, and uh, I still have them, the paperbacks, you know, sort of torn and mottled after all these years. They were part of that journey to becoming a writer for me. They, of course, inspired Alex Ryder. So, so I am very precious about Fleming, and, uh, and I had to do it my way. It's been an interesting trajectory for Foyle's war, that with the end of the war, it moves from being more of a police procedural to more of a spy series. How much... Do you think you'll never be able to escape Fleming and spies and MI5 and MI6? Oh, easily. I mean, you know, I've got my next book, Magpie Murders, and I've got the book after that sort of is going to be another kid's book, and, uh, and I'm doing a new TV show at the moment, which is a police procedural show uh, with very young uh, participants in it. Uh, the most, both the heroes are in their 20s. Um, and um, I've, I've left that behind me. I mean, Foyle, the great thing about Foyle was being able to reinvent it. You know, we'd, we'd done this show. I started it actually about the same time as Alex Ryder, 2000, and, um, uh, and had done, gone to it from Midsummer Murders because I wanted to use the whodunit form to do more than just who killed the lady in the library or whatever. And um, 
Foyle is, you know, Foyle went through the whole war, which I loved writing. Then we had this terrible problem, which is that the war ended. And uh, uh, which, if you're called Foyle's war, is not easy. I mean, suddenly I remember, oh, Cold War, so we can move on. And we completely reinvented the show. We took out the seagulls, the cliffs, the Hastings, the, all that sort of uh, uh, guys with blue bobby hats on and police stations, and went into the world of, of, of espionage. And it was a fantastic opportunity. It completely refreshed us. It, was, it gave me wonderful news stories to write about. And I think, in many ways, the last six episodes we did, and particularly the very last one, Elise, was the best work we did on that show. I agree. They were fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah. But is that it for it? That is it. That is definitely it now. It's gone. Uh, Why? Because you, writing is an adventure. You, you, can't, you can't rest on your laurels. You've got to keep moving. So Alex Ryder won't come back? No more Alex. It's awful. Actually, I do have one idea about looking at Alex Ryder age 28 or 29. Coming back and writing an adult book about this, all I know about this book is, it's about, it'll open in this really disgusting bedroom with this skunky kid in a bed with soiled sheets and the alarm goes off and he rolls over and he lights a cigarette and he, he's in a total mess and it's my fault. All those adventures he had as a kid, those ten adventures, have ruined him as a human being. And, um, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and the story will be about him, it'll be about him finding himself. It'll be about him being rehabilitated and finding happiness. And that's just one book to write. I don't think any adult, any writer has done that with a kid's character and taken him through to the other side and just, just sorted him out again. So I, I might do that. I hope you get onto it before J.K. Rowling does Harry Potter's methamphetamine addiction. Uh. <laughs> only, in, only on the page. I absolutely predict that in a couple of hundred years, your sons, daughters, sons, daughters, great-great-grandchildren will be approached by someone who says, can I write, can I revive the Alex Ryder ca ah, character and bring it nice, back to What life. a lovely thought. It's going to happen. I think your contribution to this generation of readers and future generations of readers is uh, extraordinary, and we thank you very much. Well, thank ladies you, Michael. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Michael, thank you. Brilliant. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.